I'm Jeff Cohen. Yehudis Golshevsky has been a well-known Torah educator in Jerusalem and abroad for the last 25 years. She's also the founder of Shaviti, an organization that offers classes and experiences to Torah-observant women of all ages and backgrounds. You might think someone like her grew up religious, but in fact the opposite is true, and she's here today to share her story. Yehudis, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you taking some time to talk with us. And I know we're going to, of course, get into your organization, but we'd like to get to know a little bit about our guests and where they're from and their background. So let's start at the beginning and just give our listeners a sense of where you were born and raised. I was born in New York, uh, raised in both Brooklyn and Queens. I've lived in a few different cities in the United States for school, Buffalo and Cleveland, before making Aliyah. I came to Israel to stay at the age of 22. I've been here since, about 30 years. And so growing up, how would you describe your family from a religious perspective? Where were you holding as a family? So we have a very interesting story. Both my sister and I, we have different places where we try to make our contributions to the Jewish world. But my sister and my brother-in-law have been working in campus outreach for also the last 30 years or so. And my sister is also a mental health professional. But we're both deeply invested in Jewish life and in you know, cultivating the Jewish future. So we're gifted from heaven with a really interesting combination of influences. We didn't grow up disconnected. We grew up very strongly affiliated because our father, Zichonol uh, he passed away a few years ago. He was a very big influence, obviously, in our lives. He had grown up in an Orthodox home and had been quite Orthodox and had been yeshiva trained until he was 18 years old. And he gave us permission to share his story because his whole evolution as a returnee to his roots is something that he felt was redemptive for him to share his story. It's really quite inspiring. And of course, he had a big influence on us, although in actual fact, my sister and I became observant before he was ready to come back. So we grew up in a kind of mixture of influences because like most people who left observance in the 60s, which was you know, his, his generation. A lot of people who had European parents, like he did, we grew up with a lot of Holocaust survivors as well. So he had a lot that he couldn't quite let go of. You know, it's very confusing with a parent who's got powerful bonds with his upbringing and other things he just walked away from completely. And it was really hard for us to figure out the contours of that. So we were given a day school education. We went to Orthodox day school but we didn't keep Shabbos. And we had the influence of Shabbos, what Shabbos really felt like and was like and how to observe it because we had a fully observant Hungarian Baba. Our grandmother, my father's mother, who was a widow, we, she lived in Flatbush and we used to, in East Flatbush, and we spent Shabbos with her. So the smells of Shabbos, the feel of Shabbos, of what a traditional Orthodox life felt like, we were really very familiar with this. When we went to her house, we kept Shabbos. The one time I remember violating Shabbos in her house, I was six years old, and my sister and I both agreed in later years this was a formative experience for both of us because we had woken up really early on Shabbos morning, and like we did at home, we went to the TV and very quietly turned it on. Our Baba hadn't gotten up yet to go to shul, and um, we turned on the TV really, you know, really low, but we wanted to watch cartoons, like Saturday morning cartoons, right? And she came out in her dressing gown. She saw we had turned on the television. She had a look on her face of such horror 
and such devastation. She sat down on the couch and she just put her hands over her face and she started to weep. It was really it was so overwhelming because we loved her so dearly. And we didn't realize that it was going to cause her so much pain. So my sister and I sat there frozen. On the, we were little girls, six years old and eight years old. Sat there on the couch just feeling her pain. And um, she left the room. I mean, we must have shut off the TV or something, which probably wasn't exactly what she wanted us to do either. But so many years went by, like, you know, maybe another 15 years went by before my sister and I had this conversation of how we both had been so powerfully impacted by her response to Chilo Shabbos, to the violation of Shabbos in her space, by us. And my mother was very positive about Judaism. My father taught her a lot, you know, when they got married. He taught her how to keep Pesach the way he needed Passover to be observed in his home, That because he kept certain observances that were, like, extra strict. So, you know, we, we got a lot of different flows from a lot of different places. The best memories that either both of us have growing up are those quiet Shabbosim that we had with our grandmother, her chalent, her challah, her candles. We attribute everything that came forward to those influences that were really powerful. But day school wasn't a great fit for me. And in terms of personal observance, like that wasn't what I did and that wasn't what I was interested in. Uh, it took a while for me to get on board. Even though I had a lot of positive experiences, um, my spiritual direction didn't coalesce around Judaism until I was a bit older. So were you thinking more about career as you were going through middle school and high school? Like, given what you do now, was there this inkling as a young child that something in education or teaching was going to be in your future? What were you thinking about if it wasn't necessarily religious growth at that point in your life? Oh, I was like from the age of 10 determined to be a doctor. When I got older, I was also very interested in natural health and alternative medicine. So at a certain point, I decided I thought it was more likely that I was going to go into midwifery. I was an environmental studies major with pre-med in college before I switched over to focus on Judaic studies. But no, I was going to go into the health field or something having to do with environmental stuff because that was my passion. But um, I had this epiphany while I was in, the, you know, in college, in the middle of college, when I realized that what I was getting the most, the biggest infusion of spiritual nourishment and vitality from, like that what was really giving me a lot of joy, were those hours every week where I was learning Torah or and sharing it with people that I knew. And I was able to shift gears and focus on building my Torah education in a very committed way so that I was able to move on to teaching adults. So talking about medicine versus Torah, in researching your background, I came across the story of a Rav you came across who made a prediction about what your career was going to be. Can you share that story? I was on the verge of graduating from high school, and I was all set to go to university in the fall. I had a job lined up for the summer, and I had this opportunity to meet a rabbi who was visiting from Israel who was known to be a mystic and, let's say, to be clairvoyant as well. And our family had had some... You know, at a distance, I had had some information come to me through various experiences that friends of the family had had with him over the years, I guess from the age of, became aware of him at the age of 14 or so. So it was quite compelling to me when we got invited to go and speak with him, my father, my sister, and myself. At that stage, I was more interested in a guru, you know, than I was in a rabbi. I thought it was quite interesting that there's such a thing as a Jewish guru. So I went. And I walked in, you know, we walked in together, 
And the first thing he said to me, he didn't know us at all, and he looked at me and he said, oh, you think you're going to be a doctor? He started laughing at me. You think you're going to be a doctor? You're not going to be a doctor. That if you don't teach Torah, you're, you're going to be a very unhappy person. You're going to teach Torah. And so it was a strange thing to hear because I was certainly the last person you would have thought who would uh, go into Torah education. I wasn't Torah observant at all then. But, and I sort of filed it away. I didn't really think about it. I just, you know, made my decisions as time went on based on my own desires. Years later, when I switched gears and was already observant and had switched gears in my educational path, it then dawned on me, oh, yes, this is what he had said. But it wasn't guidance that I had accepted and was moving with. You know what I mean? So how do we get to this epiphany? Because I'm thinking back to a couple of the answers you gave where you're growing up in this sort of mixed background. It sounds like a little bit confusing as to where you're really landing in terms of your Judaism. You have this interest in medicine and you think that's the career path. Maybe this Rav puts something in your head, but it doesn't sound like the next day you completely changed gears. And it seemed like after you spoke to that Rav, you still thought you'd be on a medical path. What got you initially interested in looking at Judaism on a deeper level from where you're at at that point in your life? I was open-minded about anything that was mystical, spiritual, because I was a real seeker from a very young age. I had a meditation practice from the age of, I guess I started when I was 12, where I would sit and I was experimenting with all kinds of different practices like self-hypnosis and lucid dreaming. I was very into all kinds of things. Like I used to walk around with my mystical texts from other traditions, you know, in middle school. By the time I met this rabbi at the age of 17, I, I already had improvised for myself a spiritual system that was not only not consistent with Jewish tradition, but was really very foreign to Jewish practice. But I knew there's such a thing as Jewish mysticism. I was open to the possibility that I could find my spiritual um, needs met in Judaism, but my experience with modern Orthodox day school was that it was not the right way for me. It really did turn me off, I hate to say it. So I met this rabbi and he, he did something that was very unexpected. He didn't do it with my sister, my older sister. He said to me, you should come to Israel. And I said, no, I'm going to university in the fall. He said, no, 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 you should put that off. You should come to Israel. I said, where will I live? Will I live with you? I'm thinking like apprentice, clean the floors, chop his vegetables, and just observe. You know, this is this is my way of thinking at the, you know, at the age of 17. He said, no, 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 no. You have to find a place to be, but my door is open. You'll be able to ask any question, come anytime. I said, can I take three days to consider it and meditate upon it? And he said, of course. So I went home and I did so. And after three days, I called him. He was still in New York. And I said, I, I've decided to come to Israel. What do I do now? He said, you'll have to find a place to park yourself. So that's how I wound up at Neve Yerushalayim at the age of 17 in Harnov at a school for women who are interested in deepening their knowledge of Jewish tradition. But I wasn't there because I wanted to learn about Judaism. I was only there because I wanted to have an opportunity to go to his house and ask him my questions. And so I would sit in classes and I kept a little notebook. I would ask questions and I would, you know, try and draw more, always more information from teachers. So if I asked, I don't know, a question about uh, lighting Shabbos candles, you know, so a teacher would give me a good answer. And, and then I would say, could you tell me more? And then the teacher might add a little bit more. And I would say, can you tell me some more? And it's, at a certain point, the well would run dry, and I'd still feel curious. So I'd mark it in my little notebook, 
Shabbos candles. Then I would take the 11 bus and go into Beit Yisrael near Meisharim in Jerusalem at night, and I would go visit with my rabbi, and I would ask him Shabbos candles. And then he would tell me unbelievable things. It took me another 30 years, you know, 20 years, 25 years, until I found those answers that he gave me about this mitzvah or that mitzvah. I found them in the holy works. You know, I found them in our literature, those answers. In the Ben Ishchai, in writings of the Arizal, very, very deep answers. He, and I was not observant then. And he answered every question with such depth and such straightforwardness, always taking everything that I asked him, like with the utmost seriousness, and devoting a lot of time to me. So, you know, I was given a resource that not everybody gets. So that was such an eye-opener. I mean, here is what I have been looking for, not specifically Jewish practice, but a deep mystical tradition that answers to the spiritual stirrings that I have inside of myself. This was something that was a big eye-opener for me, like, oh, here is a possibility that I don't have to go outside of my tradition in order to be a spiritually fulfilled person. And um, I continued to learn. Eventually, I went back. I came back to New York. I worked. I went off to school in Buffalo. But I already knew that it was just going to be a matter of time before I started to practice because I, got, I had had more insight into practice. And once I was practicing, I was learning more. And I loved it. I just enjoyed it so much. So how did your father feel about this growth you were going through, given what he had experienced and how you were raised? So my sister and I were both at college when um, we both began to keep Shabbos and um, be observant. And I, uh, we did, our, we, you know, we had our own pace, but it was basically happening parallel at a distance of about 500 miles from each other because she was in Albany and I was in Buffalo. And, and I would go back and forth and I would spend time with her also. Sometimes we spent Shabbos together. And my father, and in later years, we had more time to talk about it, especially before his death. And um, he said that... You know, he had about 30-some-odd years on hiatus from Jewish observance for the most part. And he had also a, a good amount of guilt about it. His mother did not live to see him return. They were very close. And, you know, even though he had been a rebel, so to speak, we never heard him talking smack about Judaism. We never heard him speak ill of Orthodox people or of rabbis. That's quite unusual for people who come from his background and walk away. And so I think it was a kind of inertia that carried him for that long because he really loved Yiddishkeit. Like he really, really, we never understood why he wasn't observant because it was clear that his values and his internal compass was so aligned with traditional Judaism. It was very hard to understand. And in later years, he said, I felt like you and your sister becoming observant was God's way of saying that he would accept me back. I feel like I'm going to cry now just from saying it. He came to visit us when we were both in Israel at the same time, my sister and I. We were back in Jerusalem. She was post-college. I had taken a leave of absence, switching. That was after my epiphany, switching gears. And that summer, he came to visit. My mother also came. And she came to Neve, and she studied at Neve the whole summer. She was taking classes. And he signed up to come and visit for two weeks or something like that. And she and I were so worked up about where we're going to take them for Shabbos, who we're going to introduce them to, like we wanted more than anything. And we were praying so much that we're going to manage to get that door open in him, to get him back. We knew he was ready, and he just wasn't allowing himself. 
So before his visit, I had this, again, an epiphany, and I said to my sister, you know what we need to do? We need to get him a pair of tzitzit. Let's get, he hadn't worn his tzitzit since he, since he was 18 years old. She's like, he is never going to put those on. I said, no, 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 I, I feel like it's going to do something really good. I went to Meisharim to like the best, I asked a rabbi that I knew, what is the best, best place to buy tzitzit in all of Jerusalem? Who is the most kosher place to get it from? Like I, he said, go to Gershon Heinach on Rehov Meisharim on Meisharim Street. Go there and buy the tzitzis there. I walked in there. I was a Yiddish speaker a little bit, you know. I grew up in a Yiddish speaking environment. I'm talking to him in Yiddish. I come in dressed like, you know, like a newcomer to Judaism, like dressed, you know, not like Meisharim, but I speak a little bit of Yiddish. And 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 this little old man, Gershon Heinach, Zichron Levracha, he's a big tzaddik, and he says, um, what size do you need? I said, I have no idea. I said, my father is like this tall and this big, you know. <laughs> he gives me two pair of tzitzis. And um, my father came to visit. We're sitting, we're in the room with him. It's the evening. And my sister nudges me. She's like, you do it, you do it. So we have this package. I go to him. I said, Daddy, we got you a present. He says, oh, yeah. Opens it up. Silence. I didn't know if he's going to say, like, you're being chutzpah You're being insolent by, you know, trying to influence me. Or what? We didn't know what his response was going to be. And um, he set it aside. He said thank you. He didn't get into it. But he kept the first Shabbos he was in Jerusalem. And he kept the second Shabbos he was in Jerusalem. And then the third Shabbos, he was going home a bit early. And he was going to be on his own. And um, I didn't know, is he going to keep that third Shabbos or not? You know, what's going on with him? So, of course, I get the duty of calling him Sunday to see, you know, what he do? So I, I called him. And he says, oh, to what do I owe the pleasure? Oh, you know, he knew why I was calling. So I said, um, and my sister's sitting there, big eyes, you know, next to me. I said, oh, how was Shabbos? He said, that's in Yiddish. It means I observed Shabbos already three times. And in, in Jewish practice and law, if you do something three times, it's like solidifies it. You can't really go back. So he meant to say, I kept that third Shabbos. That's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going back again. And he never looked back. And he was a perpetual Balchuva. He never stopped doing Teshuva for those missing 35 years. His last period of his life was extremely uplifting, but he accepted every bit of suffering as a cleansing. And, and very close to the end, he said, I'm not afraid to die, but I am afraid to stand before my Creator and to have to account for all those years. So he was like the best example for me and my sister. When we made our move, it opened the way for him to make his move. He got his life back. Now let's go back to what was happening with you. I know I'm talking to you from Israel. So that means at some point you made a decision to go back. So let's go into that piece of your story, who you met, his background, and how you ended up starting a life in Israel together. When I went back to the States and I went off to college, I had lots of others, I, I, other possible ideas about what I would do. But it was kind of tugging on me, like that sense of there is something going on there that I would like to be a part of, and I could see it in the future. And then once I started to be observant, and I eventually realized that Jewish education is the pathway, I knew that I was going to wind up working with women, you know, with adults, and not um, going into teaching, school teaching, or something like that. I knew that that was where I was headed. So my whole focus from the age of about 20 was how to get the education that I needed to be able to come back to Israel and teach. So that's what I focused on. That's all I did. And um, 
you know, created a special major program, switched majors in the university, spent two years in Cleveland at a very high-level uh, post-Basiakov teaching seminary in order to get the background that I needed and just have never stopped learning. So by the time I was 20, I already realized what the trajectory was going to be, and I just worked really hard to get towards it. And when I was 22, I had graduated both college and my teaching seminary, got a job at Neve, and I had a place to go and a place to land. And I met my husband very soon after I came to Israel when I was 22, like within weeks I met him. So I felt like my whole, it was so clear to me. I'm, I'm, I don't know if you get the feeling already, like I'm a gut person. I go on my kish because, you know, like my intuition has been the thing that guides me my whole life. And so when I graduated from school, it was not a question. I felt like my whole future is just waiting for me in Jerusalem. I just have to go there. Everything is going to be there. And sure enough, that's what happened. My sister got married that summer when I was 22. I helped her make a wedding. I helped my parents out. I did some work that summer, took a one-way ticket, went to Israel, and met my husband a few weeks later. So my sister and I wound up getting married three months apart. And, and that's and it rolled forward from there. Okay, so we have six children, Kenaina Hara, we have two married daughters, we have four grandchildren, and um, a life, a whole life built here. And so what was your husband's background from a religious standpoint compared to yours? And then as you became a couple, where did you land on how you wanted to start a family and where you would be holding as a couple? My husband grew up in the yeshiva world. His family is Lithuanian in origin. His father was a rabbi. He's not practicing anymore. So um, he grew up in like a conventional, what we would call yeshivish home, because his father worked in outreach, and his father had an outreach synagogue. So he grew up in a home, though, you know, even though we would say like mainstream yeshivish orthodox, you know, what people would call like black hat, they definitely were in an outreach positive environment. So he knew what it meant to open your home. When we met, he had already made some pretty major changes because he was raised non-Hasidic and he became a Hasid. So he became a Breslover Hasid when he was, I guess also like uh, 20, 21, around there. I was going through major changes and he was going through his parallel changes. One of the first things he asked me when we met was, it wasn't really a question. He said, I'm looking for someone who's interested in dynamic change. That was in our first meeting. And I was a Balash Shuva. You know, I had gone through like very radical changes in so many different ways. And I looked at him, I was like, buddy, I didn't say it, but I'm like, buddy, what on earth do you know about dynamic change? So, but, but um, you know, it, we shared a common spiritual language. It was obvious from the first instance. So we got engaged very quickly. We only met a few times before we were engaged. So he already was very connected with Breslov uh, Hasidism. For me, I was not unfamiliar with Hasidism because I, when I was in college, had so much support from the Chabad community in Buffalo. And I had learned a lot of Hasidut with my uh, rabbi there, Rabbi Greenberg. And it was so clear that my husband was the right guy for me that I just said, okay, I would have my, you know, conversations with God. I'd be like, okay, I guess this is the way you want me to serve you. If this is the person that you've brought to me, so then I guess this is the direction you want me to take. And, and from that point, I just dove in. I started studying Brazil Hasidut with a lot of passion. I started teaching it because there were very few women who were teaching uh, the works of Rabbi Nachman and his students in English. It was almost impossible to find in those years. We're talking about 30 years ago. 
And so um, while I was going through my process of learning, of learning those works, which are not easy works, I had a number of women who wanted to learn those works, and I would say, I can't teach these two because I'm just learning them for the first time myself. My first group of students, when I kind of tried to rebuff them and said, you know, I can't really be your teacher, I'm just learning this for the first time, they said, can we just sit in and you do it out loud? I was like, I guess, but I could be making mistakes. And they said, well, you're certainly doing better than we would do. So that was really how the first group organized itself. And then I started adding classes. You know, I'd have groups of women who'd want to, who'd hear about what's going on. They want another, they want to study some other work that no one's teaching. So I would have another class, another evening I would add. And I, it was during the years when I was raising small children. I would nurse and teach. I would bring nursing babies with me and I would latch a baby on and open the book and teach for an hour. The work that I do now is built more out of that than any former organizational structure because I never submitted to an organizational structure. I taught at this school and at that school and here and there, but I never wanted to work full-time at any of these schools because I was raising kids and I didn't want to send my children out. And all these schools have classes in the mornings. And I didn't want to send babies out until they were three. In Israel, you know, you send out very early. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted, I was nursing, I wanted to take care of my kids. So what were my options? If I was teaching, I had to teach informally in informal groups at night. So is it as your kids got older and that changed the kind of free time that you have that all the teaching you were doing culminated in this idea to become the founder of the Shviti? Like how did it get from the teaching in different places to this actual program that you're now running? So um, at, different, at different stages and ages, things are different. Like you have to accommodate. I mean, I felt I had to accommodate myself to my family's needs. But what was interesting is because my husband was and is, he's a breast of Chassid, so all our married life, he um, goes out to learn at night. And so his schedule when the kids were little was that he would come home from his afternoon schedule of learning. He would come home and it would coincide with giving the kids supper, you know, bathing them and putting them to bed. So I was able to teach every night of the week during years when usually women are not able to go out and, and do stuff in the evenings. I had a lot of freedom, and that's when I really developed a lot of students because I could go to this neighborhood and that neighborhood and teach in different places, different works, because I had that coverage at home. But we st I stay in touch with a lot of people. So at a certain point, I was asked, it, was, it kind of evolved because I was teaching on Wednesday mornings in someone's house and within the framework of a certain learning program. And they said, you know, could you do a consultation with us? We want to plan a women's, like a, a women's learning program to develop educators. And what had happened was like two years prior, one of my students said, let's open a program for women who want to go into Jewish education. I was like, oh, yeah, you want to take that on, you know? <laughs> she said, yeah, yeah, I'll do the tech, I'll raise money and I'll do this and I'll do that. You just designed a program. I said, okay. I'm very straight up with people. I said that you're asking me to do that? Okay. I devoted the time and energy and wrote a whole, spent the time to build like what that would look like, an ideal two-year program that would provide a lot of learning that's not available in a lot of places. And uh, I wrote it all up. And, and, and then it turned out she got busy doing other things. And it, it was sitting in a file in the computer for two years. And then this group of people came and they said to me, can you consult for us about opening a program? I said, oh, yeah, I happen to have it all laid out. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, 
I said, yeah, sure, I'll talk to you about it. And I did. A while later, maybe a year later, they didn't open anything. They came to me and they said, could you create a program for us and, and run it? And I ran it for them for two plus years. It became clear to me that we were going to have to move out from their organizational umbrella and become independent. And we, the fact that we were able to do it amicably is miraculous, but we did, thank God. And so Shiviti started under the rubric of another program and then transitioned out into its own self organizationally for the last three years. So it's five years, we're five years running. The first two years were under the auspices of another program, and these last three years have been independent. I'm wondering if there's a story or two you can share of you know, someone who became part of your program and it changed their life in an interesting way, or you just saw their observance change. Can you think of a good example? Yeah. It, okay, so she was from our year one, wonderful, wonderful young woman from abroad who was kind of at the early stages in her journey, but observant. And I remember having this conversation with her. She was such a, you know, you, you say like a neshamala. She's so like such a spiritual, refined, wonderful, soulful girl. And um, she was loving classes, even though it could be that at that point, the textual level was a little bit challenging for her and she wasn't really necessarily getting it all. But it was very nourishing to her in many ways. And I remember having this conversation with her and she said, you know, I'm going to live in Israel and I'm from wherever. And I really feel like I need to go to Ulpan. I need to invest time in mastering Hebrew. So I'm really torn because I love coming to classes, but the morning hours are conflicting with me being able to go to Ulpan. Now, the truth is, I think it's absolutely necessary for a person to invest energy and time into mastering, or to whatever extent you can, to, um, you know, getting a good handle on Hebrew. Even if you're not staying in Israel, you need to do that. So I was all for her studying, but the problem was that at that particular moment in time, I felt like she's at a really crucial stage of development, and it would really sidetrack her. So I said, it's really important to do Ulfpan, but Hebrew you can learn later. But I feel, if you're asking me personally, I feel like you need to invest in your Torah education right now to whatever extent possible. And there will be time for you to, for you to improve your Hebrew. And, um, and she stayed. And then time goes on. And at a certain point, and this, might be, this is already like the following year or maybe even after that, when, it, when she became solidified enough where she was thinking about dating, so she came to me to talk about Shiduchim, about dating. And I said... She was telling me what was going on and how, who she's getting set up with and so on. And I took a look at her and, you know, from her externality, it would seem that she would be more appropriate for somebody who uh, is more like not your standard black and white yeshiva guy. But one of the things that became revealed to me was she said she she's only going out with Balichuva. She herself is a Balachuva. She's going out with Balichuva. And I felt so strongly. I said, you know, I think you're making a mistake about that you're making the assumption that you're going to have nothing in common with someone who was not raised the way you were raised. But I don't think that that's true. I, I think that you, you should open your mind. If someone suggests someone who comes from a really religious home and never veered from that path, I think that if all the other criteria that come up sound compelling to you, you need to be open-minded. I really feel like you could marry a bentora, someone who grew up within the world of the yeshiva and has never left the world of the yeshiva. And she was a little taken aback by that. And she did indeed, not long afterwards, marry a ben Torah. And they are happy in their life together. It's like quite, it made a big difference for her. So that's just on the personal level, you know. 
So I have to ask you one last question before we wrap the interview. You mentioned a couple times that you make a lot of your decisions through intuition and gut. So what is your gut telling you is next for you in these coming three to five years as you continue to grow your program, your family, etc.? Well, you know, COVID kind of took us off track. We were really well situated because we had a distance program from the beginning. We had foreign, you know, students out of Israel and we were recording and, you know, we weren't using Zoom then except for work meetings, but it wound up that we were really well situated as soon as COVID hit to transition into an online format. Like we just started using Zoom right away and uh, we had students who were online students in any case. And it just really, really expanded us. You know, it really blew us open. But our original mission was, I really feel like I need to focus on helping Jewish educators, having far more resources available to them to be able to teach, even if they're not teaching uh, we'll say like mystical material, but I feel like the the passion and the depth and the uh, a sense of the greatness and the sanctity of our tradition really needs to infuse every bit of Jewish education, no matter whether you're teaching a five-year-old Aleph Bet or you're teaching Jewish history or you're teaching Sefer Shoftim. It does not matter. Like a perspective that is. Um, from within, inspired by a real connection to the deeper sources within our tradition, I feel like this is something that's really missing. Aside from the fact that a lot of Jewish educators, just in terms of their, like we'll say, not the internality of Torah, but even the externality of Torah, they don't have the skills that they need really to be able to teach the way they should. And um, that's what I've been doing for 30 years. So I really would like to make more of a contribution to future educators. And that's where probably we're headed programming wise. Like, you know, I would like to combine a master's program with very strong Torah study program for women so that we can help educators at all levels. It doesn't matter whether you're going to primary or secondary or you're in adult ed, community education. I really feel like that's where the contribution, the potential contribution lies. And I have a program already written. (laughs) 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 Already already got the syllabus. So that's probably what needs to happen. I have to say that after hearing your story and listening to just how driven you are and how you make things happen, I have no doubt that if if I were to interview you two or three years from now, that program will be fully up and running and impacting thousands of people. That's right, Hashem. You know, you could, there's a famous um, story about someone who came to Rabbi Sorel Salanter, I believe, about um, whether he should focus on his own studies or cultivate students in yeshiva. And he said, um, the answer was, well, you know, there's something really great about being an artisan and being a craftsman, like who can make the most fantastic bespoke pair of shoes. It's really valuable and it's wonderful work and it's total craftsmanship. There's something very satisfying about this. But if you're talking about actually like shoeing people, open a factory. <laughs> so I just want to say, Yudis, thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that you invited me. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit TachlisMedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com.
I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.